Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis. Continuing our conversations, years and years of them now, about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, what is the what are the what is the nature of the things of our imagination, the things we dream, the things we encounter, the things that human beings have been whispering and uh, uh, telling stories about for uh, millennia. In the modern world, we tend to think of the imagination as a relatively weak force, uh, something that you know kids have, artists have, uh, but it's a source of error. Oh, that was just your imagination. It was just a projection. Uh, and in so doing, we have, on the one hand, uh, f helped free ourselves from uh, dogma and what we might call uh, superstition, though I tend to not like that word because it's, uh, it's a little too crude for the matters we're discussing. Uh, so there's definitely some positive features to um, uh, limiting, to some degree, the claims of the imagination. And yet, uh, we find ourselves, whether through films or psychedelics or religious practice or uh, fascination with uh, childhood dreams or even the dreams of our children, uh, uh, we find ourselves returning to this world of the mythic, the uh, imaginal, the, the spectral, uh, the haunted. And uh, this has been a, a long-standing concern of mine, the nature of these these beings, how do we think about them as modern people who recognize that there's a value in what we might call enchantment as well as a value in disenchantment? And how do we uh, develop a middle path uh, between these things? And uh, these thoughts in, in my mind have been uh, stirred up and, and clarified uh, quite recently by reading a, uh, a beautifully um, published essay uh, by William Rowlandson called Imaginal Landscapes, Reflections on the Mystical Visions of Jorge Luis Borges and Emanuel Swedenborg. And it's based on a, a larger uh, scholarly work that, uh, uh, that, that William wrote. He's a senior lecturer of Latin American studies at the University of Kent uh, in Canterbury in the UK. Uh, and he's been writing about literature, poetry, mysticism, psychedelics, animism, um, as well as a new book about Sartre and the Cuban Revolution, which is a little bit in a different uh, domain, but uh, you know shows the the uh, the breadth of his interests. And I've had the great pleasure of meeting William at uh, Breaking Convention, the uh, British. Uh, conference on psychedelics that I've, I've gone to a, a few times and always have a, a wonderful time. It's my it's my favorite psychedelic conference because it it it, ha it casts the widest net uh, from scholars and scientists to uh, uh, truly wiggy explorers of the imagination with a capital I or what we will call perhaps the imaginal. Uh, so I was really happy William reached out and uh, said, hey, you know, we, we, we're, we're, we, we got a lot of stuff in common. And I was like, you know what? We really do. So let's have a conversation. So, William, thanks for joining us on Expanding Mind. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, Eric. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, it's great stuff. You know, uh, you start off this essay with and I, I've you know, I think I've read probably a, 
a sort of standard amount of Borges. You know, I read Labyrinths. I read some uh, assorted essays. I've read some other stories. But you really have gone uh, deep with the literature. And there's a lot of stories and, and essays that you refer to that I haven't read and really makes me excited to uh, go back to the man. I haven't, I haven't read him for, for many years now. Um, but one thing you talk about in particular, which has been uh, of great, uh, great interest to me as I've been doing um, my book on, um, on Philip K. Dick and Robert Anton Wilson and uh, Terrence McKenna is this interesting place you get when you're reading an, an author who's a, a who's accomplished author, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. It's not always easy to tell, but you're reading these accounts and you can tell the way that they're sort of you know, a literary or created language going on. And yet it's also animated by real experience, by experiences that the individuals had that they're working through in these in these different ways. So with Dick, of course, he has his uh, 19 two, three, 1974 experience and he he works it out in nonfiction and fiction and essay through the rest of his life. And it's it's this wonderful mix of r- reportage and uh, creative imagination and and theoretical um, reflection and the same kind of thing real is, is happening with with Borges I didn't even realize that there he did have a kind of specific mystical if we want to use that term we'll talk about it in a moment but he had a very uh, uh, distinct experience of extraordinary consciousness at a certain date in his own personal history and that this informed, uh, a lot of his work, and according to your essay, really a lot of his interest in the mysterious. So I didn't really know that at all, and I, I'd love to hear you you tell the tale of uh, of Borges's uh, own, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, investigation or experience into the kinds of worlds that he then ended up writing about. Well, you see, it's it was, it's a lovely little account that he has. It's nice and short as well, and uh, and he, it obviously meant a lot to him because he uh, he 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 wrote the same account in a, I mean, he, he actually used exactly the same bit of text, and he published it in three different places, um, all within a fairly short period. So it was something that he really wanted to to sort of express and to share with his readers, and uh, he gave it a name. I think the little the name is very significant as well, and it's Sentirse en Muerte. Uh, or feeling feeling oneself in death, um, and so it was an experience. The way he describes it, he doesn't take it's not a huge account, but he describes walking in a one of the outlying districts of Buenos Aires. Kind of, it's a sort of place that uh, readers of Borges will be familiar with because it's one of those sort of fly-blown barrios that uh, lead out into the pampa. Um, a kind of an area that really attracted him. These marginal spaces, these arrabales these funny places where there'd be sort of, um, you know, one-story houses and bodegas and places where, you know, probably two men are dancing the tango on a dusty street corner. I mean, it's all a bit mythologized. In fact, it's very mythologized. But nevertheless, there he was in one of these places. And uh, and he was just contemplating the night. And and he kind of, the way he describes it, he just fell out of time. He fell, he just, he just sort of, you know, he, he, he kind of found himself in a different order of time. And Weirdly enough, he does actually specify. He thinks he's back in the 1890s, um, so before he was born, and and it's almost like he fell through a window of time, and he hung in there for a while, and then then he kind of came 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 round, and uh, we well, not came round, but I mean he came through it, and then uh, and then wrote it down at some stage, 
And that's kind of it. That's the, that's that's it, it, he doesn't go into a big explanation. There's no kind of long exegesis of what this means. But what happened is I started to notice how often he'd talk about it, especially later in his life when he had a lot of interviews. And in fact, I, I recommend interviews of Borges to, to anyone. Um, his interviews are fantastic. He, he, a lot of them were, were done in English in, in various U.S. universities because he used to tour around U.S. campuses in the 60s and 70s. He was a kind of strange um, kind of he was both hip and very square at the same time in that kind of atmosphere. It's an extraordinary juxtaposition of images. Um, and he often used to refer to this period that he had, this, this experience he had when he was younger. And he refers to it as one of two mystical experiences that he had in his life. And it's not entirely certain what the other mystical experience is. Um, but I suppose the thing that, that initially, there were lots of different aspects of this that in, interested me. Obviously, on the one hand, the extraordinary experience. If anyone has an extraordinary experience, to me, my eyes, my ears prick up and I pay attention and I find these things uh, enthrall me. But I also find it so beautiful how intertwined it is with his fiction. And therefore, it, it's, it is Borges more than any other writer, well, various other writers who've really been my guides into the world of the imaginal, where, where if you try and ask the question, you know, well, did he, you know, did this really happen or did he just make it up? You end up realizing that the question is itself a fairly irrelevant question because really happening and making up are actually the same thing in their different modes. And, uh, and, and so as I started to explore the fictionality of this little account and to explore how this little account is present in so many of his fictions in other, in other sort of guises and other ways, I started to really feel that wonderful sense of the intermediate ground between sort of fact and fiction, between yeah, between reality and imagination. It's yeah, that's these are all the sort of aspects that I drew on. Plus, one more thing, Eric, I want to just say the other thing which I find, and this is something that I've tried to express with other people, and uh, certain people have kind of nodded their head in agreement, and that is that sense of um, of kind of crossing a threshold from sympathy with questions of strange phenomena, um, you know, the, the, the more anomalous aspects of human experience, sympathy with, with such ideas, you know, having, as I've described in the past, having bookshelves filled with Colin Wilson, um, but then at a certain moment, actually having that experience. So now you've gone from just being interested through the books that you've got and the ideas and reading these guys, um, and then uh, suddenly experiencing it. And I sense that that was, that was what made such an impact on Borges, was the fact that the various, you know, tracts of mystical literature that he was already familiar with, I get the impression that in that moment, he suddenly sort of felt, wow, it can happen to me too. <laughs> That's how yeah. I see it anyway. Yeah, that, that makes that, that, that has a lot of resonance. I mean, because when, you know, since I've been dealing with these questions, writing about these other characters, you know, very similar kinds of problems, um, especially with Dick, who's, who's really expressing them in, in literature, uh, the, the Wilson does as well. It, it's less about, I mean, in some ways, it's less about what particularly happened to them or even how they interpreted what particularly happened to them. It's just the fact that that, that there is an extraordinary experience kind of enlivens all of the, the, the work they do in relationship to these topics. It's like it gives it a sort of electrical charge that, that raises uh, the energy of their uh, investigations. But with the resonance, I mean, reading that, that account, I mean, it, it really struck out to me because it, it was so similar to aspects of, um, 
I mean, Dick had many, many experiences, but one that he had a, a, a few times that he returned to often was a very similar sense that the landscape around him, which was, uh, you know, Orange County in, in ca Southern California, um, that somehow it transformed into uh, Rome of, of late antiquity. Which I know at first, it, Eric. Which sounds this absurd. Is... Because it's like Orange County doesn't look like Rome, but then the, I think what he was seeing, what like what, and he he makes little references to it, is that some there's sort of a, a kind of, a public architectural style in Southern California of the sort of Spanish style, and so you get these colonnades, you get things that you can imagine through a certain lens could could actually kind of structurally invoke Rome, but it's a very similar sense of of time, of, of skipping through time. Uh, as a mode of, of mystical experience. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, the, the Dick one that you're referring to, this is the one that was so brilliantly illustrated, isn't it? The, um, the, the graphic novel. Yes. Um, yeah, I know that well. Um, and the way I thought about it at the time was the power of the symbol. And in this case, it was the symbol of the fish. Um, and he found himself really identifying with those early persecuted sort of Gnostic um, Christians at the time of the Roman Empire, um, and so the the kind of the, the 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 key the key for this 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 transcendence through time seems to have been in his case in that particular case the symbol, and it's symbols that obviously that really that really work over time. I'm really I'm really curious and fascinated by symbols for for sort of unlocking that capacity. Absolutely. And, and one of the interesting things about his use of, of the symbol that I think reflects uh, on, I think, a condition that you and I are both ad addressing in our work, which is how do we deal with this stuff now? How do we remain, on the one hand, moderns, influenced by science, influenced by critical uh, thinking, uh, by humanities and the kind of reflexive thinking that goes on in anthropology and psychology and the study of literature with this experiential realm where, where things become ambiguous, where possibilities loom that might challenge our, our rational sides. And how do we navigate that, uh, particularly now when reality is kind of melting and, you know, across the globe? You know, I mean, it, but we'll, I want to get to that, that p political side of things later. But just to stay with this question of, of sort of how we, how we navigate it, I think one thing that's interesting about Dick's relationship to the symbol, the fish, is that it constantly morphs. So in some of his descriptions and drawings, it's the fish, but then the fish becomes a DNA coil, becomes a whale. Beca be the, the, even the symbols, in a way, are mutating. Uh, so it's this sort of feedback process where you can't go, ah, now I've reached the archetype. Now I have reached the essence of what this symbol or this myth is. It's like the world that you're entering is itself always shifting and always changing. And so you have responsibility for how you're creating it, how you're telling stories, how you're perceiving it. Uh, it gets even, it's almost like there's even another level of, of mystery uh, to the encounter. Oh, there's no, there's no end to the level. I think, Eric, you've hit, that's the whole thing about the symbol. If at any stage anyone said, well, I've nailed that, you know, I've got it now, that's fine, I've sorted that one out, I now know what that one means, then that would, the symbol would just sort of um, would lose its magic and lose its capacity for transformation. I think that's precisely the issue. That uh, if we, um, I'll give you an example, Eric. I'll give you a, a, I'll give you an illustration of this. 
this weekend just gone Saturday and Sunday I um I helped uh, put together this extraordinary um uh, artistic stroke ecological stroke just downright weird and beautiful um tour around certain trees at the university lands which is quite beautiful and green and wild including going into a um a graveyard of an old old church um and we mapped 13 trees um and those trees we used as the as a symbol of the trees the old celtic om the om alphabet the o g h a m which are kind of similar to runes in some respects um, I won't go into too much detail of this, but a, a, a merry band of us, of you know, about three dozen of us, wandered slowly in the rain and the wind um, from tree to tree, performing little pieces and uh, and eventually having a fire at the end. But what we did is we we focused on those symbols themselves. And one of the f- feelings that I got from the symbol is that it's no more or less meaningful now than it was at any other time. The question is, is how you identify with it and how much investment you give in that symbol and so there's no sense that I had of well there was somebody who knew exactly what it meant and then there's now we're struggling to remember that the way I look at these these sort of very simple carvings that would have been carved on stone and etched in wood and maybe even sort of carved into a stick and just dropped by the wayside for somebody else to pick up they were secret then they're secret now and what you have to do is you have to invest in the symbol and let the symbol resonate at all those different levels and exactly in that way that dick describes it transforms if the symbol were rigid and 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 untrans if it didn't itself shift in its form and shift in its meaning then it wouldn't really be a true symbol it would just be a, 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 a it would just be a i don't know what you do in a sort of semiotic sense as to what it would be it would just be a a mark it would cease to have that power to connect people and so the way i sort of feel with this is as we were walking around the autumnal landscape, sort of really meditating on these symbols, we were in a way communicating across time. We were actually putting our hands through this kind of crazy fabric of the space-time continuum and kind of reaching out. And I did feel at times that there were these guys who would have carved this, these ohm scripts in, in you know, 2000 years ago. Um, they could have been Druidic, they could have been Christian, they could have been Druidic stroke Christian in that peculiar fertile time, is that they were also reaching out and sort of touching our hand. And I felt that that was it, that rather like Dick and the, and the, and the, um, and the, and the fish, these very simple but very meaningful symbols have that capacity to sort of join us across time. That's the way yeah. I look at it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and in a way, that's what we're doing when we when we read literature, when we read spiritual books. We're we're it's not just that we're uh, receiving a, a distantly sent message from the past. It's that we're in a sense reanimating uh, these authors. I mean, there's that wonderful idea. Alan Moore d- plays with this a lot, and other um, fantasy writers have played with it. That you know, the gods are only kept alive by through our through the the attention of the living. So that when you you know be, you know let's say commit to some kind of practice or like let's say a pagan practice where you're interested in in sort of re-enchanting or revivifying beings that have largely lo- you know exist only in literature or only in books of uh, archaeology and history. That there's sort of a a reanimation process going on. So it's like we're we're animating each other through time. And you you get that. You talk a lot about it in your essay about the sort of that that mystical practice isn't that far away if you remember 
or acknowledge the way that your own interest in these matters, even if it involves reading or having conversations with friends or taking walks in the woods with the daydreaming brain, that these are all, you're already on the path because that's that kind of encounter, even through literature, is part of the subject that you're looking at. Yeah, well, you say even through literature, I say especially through literature. Um, I find it very interesting that Allen Ginsberg felt, spent a long time looking for a guru until eventually he met a guru who said, your guru is William Blake. And uh, and it was and then it was then at that moment that uh, Ginsberg had realized that he had been he had entered into a guru master relationship with William Blake from the moment that he was in this, you know, that that, that particular moment he had in New York when he was a young man. Um, and in that same way, I think we find our we find our our ways to communicate with our ancestors and that our ancestors communicate with us. And I suppose because my magical practice for so long has been literature since I was very young, but I've been teaching literature for so long now as well, um, teaching the works of Borges, for example. Um, this is the way that I often feel the the ancestors speak, and in this case, the ancestors of these authors. They're, they're, that's that's their that's their mode of communicating. So it, when you say when we're when we're reading their text, it does require a certain degree of investment, though. For example, if you're reading a I don't know, something that doesn't enthuse you, something that doesn't interest you, so a railway timetable from ten years ago. The author of that railway timetable is really, unless you happen to enter into particularly kind of weird and wonderful negotiation with that railway timetable, it's going to be fairly, it's going to be a fairly limited communication between you and the author of that text. But if the text is something really that that draws you in, that entices you to try and unravel the unravel the riddles and sort of decipher it, so poetry for example but not just poetry but these extraordinary characters and plots and the twists and the turns when you yourself get drawn into the text it's that way that uh, that the author really is still very present and very alive and what i find particularly curious about that is that it's um it's not a one-way process that's to say the author who's now dead long dead you know, decades ago, who wrote a book, and you read the book, and you feel the information, the communication, the, you know, you feel that kind of flow coming from the book into you, which is as it is. But you also get the sense in particularly weird moments, I'm using that word intently, obviously, because of its significance. But when if you have a particularly weird encounter in literature, or in art, or in any other matter, those particular encounters, then you suddenly realize that there's the communication goes both ways, that you can communicate back, that the uh, that somehow somehow the characters or the author or the text itself is somehow attuned to you as much as you're attuned to it. It's a very weird moment, but it does happen. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Yes, it, it does. I can I could reel off some some tales of specific encounters and you use that word uh, there's a there's a great part of a uh, line in your in your book I'm just going to paraphrase uh, was something of like that the uh, that when you're you know when you when you sort of have a relationship with some kind of other being or force inside the imagination it's not that the imagination is creating this other being it's that the imagination is the place where we encounter such others and that sense of encounter seems to me really key to what we're talking about, whether we're talking about our relationship to an author who inspires or haunts us, uh, or whether we're talking about the trees that stand out from the other trees that seem to have an extra 
something for us in that moment, whether it's just a moment of acknowledgement or something that we would even return to and and leave an offering for or whatever. There's that sense of encounter, that encounter in some ways jumps over the, the, the question of whether is it real, is it not real, is it a projection, is it an a insight into the, the supernatural nature of reality. Like in a way, that's like a, a kind of fence or a, you know, a hedge. And to get over the hedge, what you do is you encounter. And there's something, uh, I don't want to say transcendent, but there's something uh, more than, than, than personal about such encounters. I, I agree with you, and, that, and I think that's where that's why I love the word, and I've been exploring it and looking for different ways to illustrate my my kind of relationship with the word, the word imaginal, because again, what this sort of um, what the imaginal does is is finds that middle ground where there is two way traffic. Um, again, we could say, for example, I could shut my eyes and imagine an orange, and that's all very well. That's that you know nobody is suggesting that that orange is now really existing in time and space but it'd be hard to argue that it doesn't there is a certain mode of existence of that orange even if it's just a thought but obviously that can that can go much much further much 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 further till the time till the state where i mean i'm being a bit facile using an orange but uh, for example meditating upon a saint or upon an ancestor spirit or upon a god um the, the true devotion and true meditation empowers to such a degree that there it's 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 no longer simply a person imagining something it's now a person a person using the imagination to form that extraordinary link that extraordinary um that communication um it, that's why i find that the word itself is useful the word imaginal is 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 useful because i wouldn't suggest that all encounters are imaginal unless you're leading a particularly ecstatic life which might be a bit tricky to negotiate um but nevertheless these moments do occur these these moments when the imagination seems to uh uh yeah, it just seems to go that extra it seems to cross that threshold as I put earlier, and in fact, I, I do remember. Actually, I wonder if I can remember it. It was um, uh, Jeff it, uh, Jeff Kripal. He, he has that lovely bit when he's talking about Myers, and he says about um, in certain contexts the imagination can take on genuinely transcendental capacities, um, you know, and that's where those transcendental capacities of the imagination. That's where one can i think employ the word imaginal to to sort of get a to hang your hook on to hang your coat on there if you follow yeah. what i'm saying yeah. oh very very much so i mean there's so many uh, questions that are that are uh bursting in my brain but there's a few things i definitely want to to get to because they they resonate with things that we've talked about uh on this show um so there's a little bit of a setup here. One of the interesting things you do in the in your essay is you go into this question of mysticism, and you make a very, very important point that our modern sense of mysticism, whether we're thinking in terms of scholarship or even just a more general sense of what the mystical is and how it relates to religious experience, is very much uh, opposed in many ways from... The, let's call it the occult, the world of uh, the paranormal, of telepathy, of uh, uh, ghosts, of, of Loch Ness monster, of like this whole weird, the world of the weird, um, and that in many ways scholars have sort of kept mysticism apart from that 
world because they want to hold on to something that they can still have it have be um, access uh, not if not accessible but acceptable something that is not tarnished with the weirdness that that opens up once you start taking these issues seriously once you start recognizing that the imagination has the capacity for imaginal encounter, that's where you go with the ghosts, with the ancestors, with the pagan forms, with the strange creatures in the woods. You know, that's where all that stuff starts to happen, whether whether you're on psychedelics or not. And I'll, we'll get to psychedelics in a moment. But that there's but what you're saying is like you, that is just that's really flimsy. That mysticism, what we mean by mysticism is bound up with all sorts of experiences, all kinds of traveling through time of having imaginative worlds that you enter into. And uh, it's a really it, it's a really significant point because it, I think it shows the way that we, I don't know, internally divide aspects of experience, of extraordinary experience that are always uh, kind of interwoven. And for you, Swedenborg, this uh, the other mystic you talk about in relationship to Borges, uh, you know, maybe you can give a little bit of uh, uh, you know, a potted uh, history of him for people who aren't familiar with him. But he is an example of someone who's very much a mystic, like William Blake, who's clearly a mystic, but also is lives in this extraordinary world of imagination, of beings coming out of fleas, you know, becoming monsters of, you know, all these God forms, all this stuff that looks a little more crazy or a little more even pathological, but mystical as well. And And that seems to be one of the important lines to blur if you will at, at 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 the in the current moment yeah i agree eric i'm uh, probably you know i could tell you a little story here the way i'll i'll express this is so for a long long time I'd, i've been reading and teaching borges amongst other authors and uh, in reading borges and in talking about Borges with other people, I kept coming across this name Swedenborg, and I kind of had an idea who Swedenborg was. This is a number of years ago now. Um, I had an idea who Swedenborg was, but uh, I sort of, you know, I started to read up a little bit. And I, most of all, I read Borges um, and his descriptions of, you know, his writings about Swedenborg. He wrote a couple of really informative essays and a couple of poems as well. And he refers to him all the time. But so I started to explore that and I found how, how little has been written, in fact, nothing, scarcely anything had been written about Borges's relationship with Swedenborg, whereas generally you'll find the Borges scholarship is so dense with the material. It's wonderful because so many people are so enthralled by Borges, who's like Shakespeare or Cervantes, um, that I kind of felt, oh, this is weird. I need to I need to explore this. But where it took me was not just into the works sort of in the world of Swedenborg, but into the question, but what the hell does mysticism mean? And it was a long and fascinating journey. I mean, I'm still on it, but but uh, I've kind of I've kind of come away from this now. And one of the reasons I've come away is because it took me on a long, 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 long process of reading all. First of all, trying to read certain texts that are called mystical texts, and obviously that's a big that's a big question. You don't just suddenly say, oh, tonight I'm just going to read all of Santa Teresa de Avila, and then tomorrow I'm going to read all of Jacob Burma, and then on Thursday I'm going to read. It doesn't work that way. These, these, are, these are writings that require deep, deep, deep and reverent attention. So whilst, you know, it's starting to explore and attending 
various seminars and just exploring in my own way these various writers who may or may not at different times and different capacities have been called mystical. So I started to explore these people who you might put on, on a different category as being the scholars. Um, and obviously William James is the great granddaddy of all this, like he's a great granddaddy, granddaddy of psychology and the great granddaddy of psychedelics and the great granddaddy of so much. Um, and I, you know, reading a whole century's worth of extraordinarily eminent people really doing their best to define and defend and, you know, de describe what mysticism is. And it all, a lot of it left me a little bit sort of unsettled um, because it, it, it became this bizarre, quite sort of strange playing with, 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 with words that themselves are really deep and meaningful. So, for example, saying, oh, well, it's noetic, following William James's position there. But that would imply that we all understand what noetic means. But it, we could have a whole century of scholarship trying to define what noetic means, or unitive, or transcendental, or immanent, or any of these amazing introvertive, extrovertive, um, all these these many words that are that are employed in the definition of mysticism and i started to sort of feel a little bit uh, sort of hostile to all this sort of scholarly fussiness and i felt that sometimes the real questions that were being asked were not really present the real present questions that should be asked about the nature of being were not really being asked it was more sort of was so and so unitative and the best the best debate i came across of all was uh, a whole again it goes on for decades debate people debating whether um, ralph waldo emerson was or wasn't a mystic and it's amazing how much ink has been spilt on this you know was he a mystic yes because x y and z no he wasn't a mystic because x y and z and then finding different ways of describing him saying well he wasn't a christian mystic but he was a nature mystic and in fact i did find in one particular um uh, article which was from from sort of not long after the time of emerson somebody saying actually i'll tell you what he is he's a yankee mystic and i thought that term was brilliant you know a yankee mystic that suddenly we've got a new definition of mysticism but in particular i realized that one of the strategies by which a lot of um these various scholars and i'm not i'm not uh, I, I don't want to sound deprecating these guys are fantastic so many of these writers are really dazzling writers writers. I mean, Zayner, who himself took mescaline to try and sort of get into Huxley's mind space, um, Stace, um, Wolf, lots of these, um, Walter Punker, who put on the, uh, the, the the Good Friday experiment. These guys, you know, they, they did some really deep research into what mysticism means and what, what it meant. But of course, one of the strategies that's so often employed is to say before what mysticism is, to say what it isn't. And as I was reading more and more, I was reading uh, William Ng, who, who, you know, who talks about, oh, mysticism's not a, not a hysterical emotionalism. You know, yeah, I bet he's got women in mind there. I bet he's got that sort of Victorian attitude towards women. Um, uh, sublimated eroticism, visions and revelations. It's not any of this, you know, and it carries on. Fleming does the same. It's not magic. It's not occult pursuits. It's not this. It's not that. Stace himself says it's not hocus pocus. Um, yeah, and it, it's not the occult, it's not about spiritualism and ghosts, it's not about table turning. Zayner does the same, he says it's not this and it's not that. And it carries on lots of people saying, no, mysticism is not all these other weird and wonderful aspects of the, you know, the anomalous aspects of human experience. They're not paraphenomena, it's not psi phenomena, it's not the occult, it's not magic, it's not. And my feeling was like, well, what is it then? 
you know, we've we've basically we've basically taken away from the uh, table everything that to me is really meaningful about mi about mysticism until you're left with something which I realise why well, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with it because it's uh, it's too pure, it's too blinding light. It's the kind of you know mysticism is this great transcendental revelation when you're sort of transfigured against the uh, against the cosmos. No, that's never been my experience. My experience has been with wiggly worms and 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 snails and you know the woodland at night and sort of compost and the spires crackling in the in the darkness. That's you know it's very different. And in fact, I found one of the, the one of the most beautiful uh, sort of way of presenting this was actually nothing to do with mysticism, but it was actually the description that I found in um, uh, oh, I'm just uh, Patrick Harper. Um, Patrick Harper's a lovely writer. He's, a, he's written some beautiful books, in particular, Daimonic, um, Daimonic Imagination. Um, no, Daimonic Reality, sorry. And he does this division between soul and spirit, and that uh, the last 2,000 years have been really much, really dominated by spirit, and spirit is about this this, this thriving, thrusting desire for transcendence, this, this sort of burning, burning movement upwards, beyond, beyond, beyond. Whereas soul for him is the kind of the lunar and the feminine and the backwater and the, the mysterious and the murky and the, the weird and the eerie and the uncanny. All the things that you describe, Eric, about the weird is, is, is how Patrick Harper describes soul. And so I started sort of realizing that the word mysticism was really not a word that I really could get a huge amount of purchase on in relation to my own experiences, which is why I kind of ended up sort of slightly sort of closing those books and moving more into, yeah, back into the world that I'm more familiar with, which is the world of the weird and the strange. And this is where the word, I think, imaginal has, has become much more meaningful for me. That was so wonderful. And, and I have to admit, sneakily, this was all kind of a setup. And uh, the setup was uh, this question about psychedelics, because, um, you know, uh, recently, you know, one of the more celebrated studies of, of this sort of psychedelic renaissance, the return to, um, you know, official uh, investigation by by people who are credentialed by the state and have can wear white coats and things like that um, was this uh, Johns Hopkins study about mushrooms, in which they sort of restated Walter Penke's uh, conclusion, which was that mushrooms can um, occasion a authentic religious experience, and so. Of course, this is social science, so they have to have quantify everything that they can. And if you dig down into what they're doing, it's like, well, what, what does that mean? And there are these, you know, social science, psychological forms of, you know, A, B, C, D, and E. Does it fulfill these things? And they're all based on Stace's work from the 1960s. So when Stace was doing the kind of work you're talking about, which I have exactly the same relationship as you do. I do not find mysticism to be a particularly useful term except as a category for a certain kind of literature that has already been developed. Uh, that you go, they go into these things and then they go, okay, see, look, these, here are the features, A, B, C, D, and E. And then they, you know, interview people who've had these uh, psychedelic experiences and they go, okay, A, B, C, and D. All right, we got it. Authentic religious experience, you know, or, I mean, they don't say mystical in their, in their conclusions. But that's another kind of question. But what that really like, I don't know, just pointed to in a way the sort of both the desire to legitimate these experiences, 
But in order to do so, you had to do all of these things that as a scholar I see as very kind of wiggly and not very co- not very well grounded and and that we we don't really know what that means to say something is authentic or, or not authentic. And it it to me it really represented something about the limits of that whole scholarship. You know, once you're actually encountering these experiences, you enter a realm of ambiguity where is it is this a simulacrum of a mystical experience, like Zayner would say, or is it the real deal, like like whatever Terence would say? And it's like w- now we're in a place where these distinctions themselves begin to melt down, uh, and particularly with psychedelics, where you could see like people wanting to say, no, 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 psychedelics isn't just about the weird and the murky and the bizarre and the resonant and the mythic and the monstrous and all the things that it clearly is for people's experiences. No, it's also this other thing that's more pure, that's more serious, that's more religious in some way. And I'm like, what, where does that distinction come from? So it's, it's, it's the reason I I'm saying this is that your discussion about mysticism is not just a scholar's reflection on other scholars who are being too scholarly and missing the boat, you're also talking about something that's still active in the world. It's still about particularly people who are interested in, in psychedelics as a, as a spiritual exploration or a soulful explore, exploration, um, that these issues are still really alive in terms of how we think about mysticism. How do we think about these things? It, it, ha- it really, ha- you know, it has real purchase even, even today when otherwise things seem so kind of secular and rationalistic. Yeah, and and I've heard you. I mean, we talked in 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 Greenwich at Breaking Convention. You and I talked about this, and I completely agree with you that uh, a, a a a kind of a binary has been set up. Although they're not they're not opposing each other, but the, so the two choices have been set up, which is the uh, the the validation of psychedelics either through church or through or through medicine. And I'm your position, which you've 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 expressed before, is yeah. But what about the middle? What about for myself? It's neither necessarily religious nor necessarily medical. It can be just because. And 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 how does one rationalize that in the face of these very, very concrete examples that are being used on either side? So on the one hand, you've got, great, we've now nailed it, we've now proved it, we've now demonstrated that mushrooms can occasion mystical experience, and we've got a very good definition of mystical experience. It comes from Stace. Here we've got those seven characteristics, and we can do a quick... Yes, number one, tick. Is it unitive? Tick. Is it transformative? Tick. Is it this? Is it that? Is it that? Tick. And you've ticked them all and we've got it. Now, that's that's great. I mean, I, that's fine. But obviously, where does it leave the experience where, you know, what does what boxes does it tick? I don't know. Uh, it ticked the weird box. Um, it ticked the box where I had some crazy experiences that haven't necessarily been transformative in a way that, that, that might be meaningful to other people, you know, and a good transformative one there, whether it's from the religious or from the medical and obviously where the two bridge is when there's some obvious and clear change. So alcoholism, you know, and this goes back to the, 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 the work that was being done in the 1950s. And this is what Humphrey Osmond was working on in Canada, um, LSD to treat alcoholism. Now there you've got some really clear data that you can draw on. You can say this person was alcoholic and he's now been through this treatment with the LSD and he's no longer alcoholic. Therefore, we've got a clear marker. But it's very much harder to say that there's a marker of somebody who just for his or her own desire for no articulated reason that has to be spelt out and with no visible 
change or benefit has just had an experience um and that's what i find that where the murky stuff really comes to comes into play which is probably where where you're sort of uh, that's the sort of position i think that you're arguing with that middle ground as well yeah i think you and i are are also both very much uh, children of james hillman here who's really you know my favorite archetypal psychologist my my, the 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 person I turn to him more than I turn to Jung, though I do I still read and value Jung in, in many ways. And, and Hillman is so good at at emphasizing the necessity and the beauty and the value of the the pathological of the broken of the way in which you know it's not all gonna you know wrap itself up into some nice uh, uh, you know rainbow hued religious vision. And and we, earlier when you were talking about Patrick Harper. I was also thinking about Hillman and the distinction he makes between uh, the the you know the climbing the mountain you know the our idea of spirituality is like you're seeking you're climbing the mountain and you reach the mountain peak and is it the same peak are there multiple peaks but Hillman's going to go okay great you're on the peak big deal what about the valley you got to go down and then that's the that valley is where that that murky that unknown that mysterious stuff is going to be and and part of the reason. I emphasize this in terms of psychedelics is that I think that psychedelics are, I mean, obviously you're going to, you're going to agree, play a significant central role in allowing modern people to open up to the imaginal and to open up to it in a way that uh, allows for these kinds of encounters, but without sort of becoming too credulous or too, you know, uh, captured by ideas. I mean, certainly that happens to some people, but for a lot of people, psychedelic practices is about learning how to have a multidimensional experience where one foot is on the ground, where you're still engaging with reason and critical thinking, and another foot is absorbed into an other world where there are entities that you have to deal with or other uh, visions of reality or visions of time, of omni-time. And you kind of learn how to sort of navigate that and uh, and simultaneously that it enables us both to um, to touch some of these, quote unquote, mystical capacities that we have, unitive experiences, transcendental encounters with the essence of our beings, but also to lead us into, let's call it the pathological, just to make it really clear that there's something weird about the weird and that that mix itself is part of the deeper value of it. Not that, oh, well, we got to get away from that stuff so we can just focus on the on the unitive and the and the fully transformative, but it's really that it allows, it just opens up the dimensions uh, in, in a lot of ways. And I, I always feel like people read Hillman, but they don't read him as much as they should. <laughs> I mean, he, he's still someone I come back to regularly. I know you talk about him in the in the essay as well. Well, I suppose one of the things I find about Hillman is he's just he's fun to read. <clears throat> you know, uh, it does all come down to whether you're comfortable sitting in an armchair or lying in bed or on a train reading the book you're reading. And if it's a struggle to get through it, and I'll give you an example of that. On about three occasions, I have failed to read Immanuel Kant's account of Swedenborg, which is called Dreams of a Spirit Seer. And it's because I cannot handle it. I just it's just too dense it's too heavy um i've tried reading it and i've tried preparing myself for reading it and i still just my i just can't hold on to it um so in a way an entire field of of, of experience of kant has kind of passed me by because i've just not really managed to, to sort of get through a particular uh, threshold in reading whereas with hillman you can just sit down and read him at any stage but back to your question about 
about these experiences. I completely agree there. And what I particularly find interesting here is you may know that uh, here at Canterbury at Kent, there has been is one of the longest running student psychedelic societies in the UK. And it was partly that the first breaking convention was born out of the, uh, the, the, the University of Kent Psychedelic Society. And uh, I gave a talk there just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, one of the things I was trying to express is the fact that it's not really, we're not talking necessarily about whether person A has or hasn't used a particular substance in a particular time and place for the interest in that which the word itself psychedelic opens up and there was a big load of people there there were probably up you know there's getting on for i don't know 70 80 people in the um, in the lecture theater it was there was a lot of people who turned up and the one thing i wanted to make make clear to everyone is is this has got this is not about a kind of a, a club of people who have access to a certain you know type of substances this is that this word is immensely meaningful and so we started all together exploring all the different meanings of this term psychedelic um, and all the attendant words as it spins off into areas of philosophy into areas of religious experience and religious studies into questions of the paranormal and paraphenomena into questions of medicine and psychology and psychiatry and and so and so into physics and into biology and into ethnobotany and all these amazing attendant all these these myriad attendant areas where you can find the word psychedelic being immensely meaningful and being researched and explored and the one thing that I was really keen to emphasize is ultimately the word psychedelic in it will will be a sort of a window into all these different uh, all these different phenomena, and that them, that itself is 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 part of the experience. Reading any of these accounts, reading any of these studies, reading involving oneself in the in the discussion about these matters, regardless of whether a person has or hasn't used a particular substance, is the is the real meaningfulness of the term psychedelic. And I find it really exciting to to let the the associations go on and on and on, especially as it was the other day talking in a group. It went on for you know we we went layer after layer after layer of looking at all these attendant phenomena related to this particular term psychedelic and how meaningful it is um, and the whole world of I just put as one sort of X you know one phenomenon there that itself is 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 multi-dimensional I just put the three-letter word psi p-s-i and then we took that word and started to open that word up and looking at all the amazing array of phenomena that you can place within the world of psi all of which are weird because each one of which challenges our basic what well, it, it well some of our basic assumptions about the nature of being about about our basic ontological position are, are challenged by these things if we're talking about esp if we're talking about out-of-body experiences if we're talking about near-death experiences if we're talking about uh, survival of the soul after death if we're talking about ghostly encounters if we're talking about all these amazing psi phenomena that that so interested jung um, we're talking about things that make us scratch our head and say, well, how the hell does that happen? That shouldn't happen. You know, that's that's not that's not how it should be, because things don't go along those lines. But of course, things do go along those lines. And it's actually that our models of reality are slightly clunky and slightly outworn by suggesting that these things are kind of ah, they're hallucinations only that it's delusion, it's fantasy, it's imagination. No, these things are a very present part of our reality. And uh, 
And yeah, so, so you reel it back in, back to the center, and it's just that word itself, psychedelic. Um, and that that is, it, it's such a meaningful term in the same way that we were discussing earlier about the meaningfulness of mysticism that opens up so many attendant uh, uh, words itself. So I think the word psychedelic does the same thing and opens up so many, so many ideas. Well, we just have a, a, a few minutes here and I want, it's too, too short to cram in the question I have, but I still want to bring it up is that especially these days when, as I mentioned before, uh, consensus reality is 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 mutating before our eyes. You know whether it's the what's happening with media and uh, filter bubbles and uh, fake news and the uh, the the you know the power of conspiracy theory and nationalist uh, rhetoric, which is you know nationalism has a lot of mythological power to it. You know we're we're entering into a an enchanted time, a darkly enchanted time in many ways. And so one reaction to all our discussions about this world of the of, of the enchanted of the imaginal is like that's exactly what we don't want. We need to like hold on to fact and insist on reason and insist on critique and resist these kind the appeal of this realm. I'm of the view that there's there's no way out and that we're actually what we really need to do is do the kind of thing that we we've been talking about which is to bring our critical intelligence our our spirit of inquiry our our investigative power our ability to communicate with other people who are on the path and and come up with consensus and nuance things that we need to be able to embolden that in relationship to the imaginal because it's coming. I mean it's already here. I mean not just in the way like the fun pagan reconstructive let's get in touch with the the nature spirits way but in the scarier like whoa reason is not what it used to be rationality is not what it used to be kind of zone and since you touch on that a little bit at the end of your essay about the the necessity for balancing for not becoming too enchanted uh, i just we just had a literally like a couple minutes if just have a little bit of how you see I'll, the role of of inquiry in i'll give you a healing. i'll give you a very quick uh, summary of that um back in the spring back in uh, february or march i was going to do a talk again at the the psychedelic society about burrows i teach um on a module in uh, i teach on a program actually in paris um I, t I, I talk about the beats uh in particular um Ginsberg and Corso and Burroughs and Brian Geisen living in Paris. And uh, we talk about the cut-ups. And I was going to do um, a session, uh, an, an evening session at the Psychedelic Society back in February or March about the cut-ups. And uh, I've done it before and I've done cut-ups with people and we've gone to some really quite crazy places. We've really pursued it as a magical practice. And I suddenly got cold feet um, only about a week before it. And the, one of the reasons I got cold feet was because I was reading Robert Anton Wilson at the time. I was reading a book of his, which is a really extraordinary book called, um, oh, it's the, it's, the, it's the anthology. Oh man, I forgot what it's called now. It's just because you're, just because you're not paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Um, I can't remember what the book's called. Oh, I forget it. Never mind. I was reading up Bob Anton Wilson and he was talking as he does about Operation Mindfuck. And with horror, I realized that Operation Mindfuck is happening, and unfortunately, it's happening by the wrong people. It's happening by some power crazy magicians who are wreaking terrible, terrible damage. I don't need to name names, Eric. Everyone knows who I'm talking about, and we're talking about a whole system of thought as well as an individual or many individuals. And I suddenly thought, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go and start breaking down categories and busting things apart. Actually, now what we need a little bit of 
building, gentle building, a bit of solidity, a bit of actually grounding. So I backed away from doing it. As it is, months have passed by and I realized, no, I could, I'm, I'm still quite happy with cut-ups. I think cut-ups are a great plan and I think it's a good way to sort of bust up consensus reality. We need it, but we, we are up against some pretty hefty and mighty magical foes. And uh, just, uh, yeah, we've got to keep our wits about us, Eric. Yeah, very much. So that's uh, that's partly why I find these conversations so uh, invigorating. They're not. They're no longer as esoteric uh, as as they might have once been. Uh, and so, I great thanks to you for coming on the show and for writing the material you are and putting the stuff out that you you've been doing. Um, it's it's been a, a wonderful chat, and we could go on for hours. <laughs> it's been lovely talking with you, Eric. Thank you very much. Uh, great. So that's once again William Rowlandson, author of Imaginal Landscapes and other other materials on the imagination, uh, mysticism, animism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he's a, dr- a great drummer as well. So, um, with uh, uh, until next week, keep your minds open. Mm-hmm.